This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Shamoon, Associate Professor in the Department of Japanese Studies at the National University of Singapore. Dr. Shamoon is the author of Passionate Friendship, The Aesthetics of Girls' Culture in Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2012. Dr. Shamoon, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks so much for inviting me. In your research, you've looked at representations of women in Japanese cultural production, mainly in the Taisho period, but also going back into the Meiji period as well, I understand. Yeah, that's correct. So I initially started out trying to understand shoujo manga, which are romance comics for teenage girls. And once I started thinking about this topic, I realized that the shoujo is actually a very specific topic or theme in Japanese cultural production. And it begins in the Meiji period, because that is the moment when Japan switches from a feudal system to a modern industrial society. And all industrialized society have gone through this change where suddenly this space opens up between childhood and adulthood. In pre-modern societies, you're a child and then you are an adult, which means that you're physically able to have children and you are ready for marriage and full uh, adult participation. But in industrial societies, there's a gap between childhood and adulthood what has become in our society very extended adolescence, where adulthood is delayed for a number of years for higher education, but also for economic reasons. So when that happened in Japan in the Meiji period, for the first time, you had daughters of the middle and upper classes who were attending secondary school and who were for the first time visible in public. In the Edo period, even when young women may have received some higher education, they were typically kept at home for the sake of chastity and kept protected and cut off from the rest of society. But in the Meiji period, for the first time, you have these girls attending school, and it was a big change in gender roles. So what you see in literature of the Meiji period, particularly the the early Meiji period in the 1880s, you see young women appearing in these new roles for the first time. And I know a while back you had Indra Levy on the podcast, and she talked about Ukigumo by Futabate Shime is considered Japan's first modern novel. But it's not an accident that in Japan's first modern novel, uh, which is a love story, the two main characters are a man who is a bureaucrat, Bunzo, and a girl, Osei, who is a graduate of a girl's secondary school. So these are the two main types that start to appear in Meiji fiction, the bureaucrat for the male role and the schoolgirl for the female role. One of the big changes that happened in literature of the Meiji period was the introduction of the concept of romantic love, or renai. And this was a new concept that was taken from Western philosophy and Christianity, the idea that love had some elevating spiritual qualities to it. And this was completely different from the way that love had been thought about in the Edo period. You know, in the Edo period with Buddhist conceptions of love as just being carnal desire and something that you needed to transcend and overcome in order to achieve enlightenment, love was really left, or sexual desire really is what it was, was left to the licensed quarters. And so in fiction of the Edo period, sexual desire and romantic feelings are entirely contained in the pleasure quarters and they're between men and prostitutes. And when they emerge in the middle class or the chonin marriage, then they are disruptive. And the stories end with double suicide or with execution. You don't have novels like in 18th and 19th century Britain, where 
the novel, if it has a happy ending, it ends with marriage. It's not until the Meiji period and the introduction of Renai and romantic love that suddenly that becomes a possibility. And so this is one of the things also that Ukigumo is struggling with is how to portray Renai and romantic love. Because suddenly love becomes this philosophical ideal that the characters can aspire to, but it means that they have to have a chaste kind of courtship. They can't have the pleasure quarters kind of courtship where they flirt and tease and maybe have sex. It has to be a solely an intellectual connection between them. And the shift from the depiction of ninjo human emotion as the motivating factor in literature of the Edo period to renai or romantic love as the motivating factor in literature of the Meiji period is also part of the shift from depicting the pleasure quarters in literature to depicting the middle classes. And this was something that the novelists of the Meiji period were very invested in. They wanted literature to be an elevated, serious kind of intellectual pursuit and not some uh, trashy, semi-pornographic, throwaway entertainment. So the characters had to become the middle class. And as the romantic interests in these novels become the daughters of the middle class, this is why you have the teenage girl emerge as such an important character in this fiction. You mentioned ukigumo. Can you give us a few more examples of major cultural products from that time and other types of examples? Yeah, sure. So what is called the first novel that is written by a woman in the Meiji period is The Warbler in the Grove by Miyake Kaho. And that appeared at the same time as Ukigumo in the late 1880s. And, and that also is set in a girls' school, and the characters are uh, either students or graduates of girls' school. And Miyake Kaho was drawing on her own experiences in writing that novel. And the novel also was a sensation. It was a view into that life from the inside. And it's a real contrast to the way that the girl student is depicted in Ukigumo. So in Ukigumo, even though the narrator speaks with a lot of authority and says, these girls, you know, th this education has completely ruined Osei. It has made her flighty and silly. It's just for girls who don't know what they want. Really, if we look at, if we step back and look at it critically, we can see that this is a very sexist way of understanding girls' education, that it is somehow damaging them. Whereas in The Warbler in the Grove, Miyake Kaho gives a very clear defense of women's education. I'm saying that this is a good thing for women uh, because this was still a period where education for women was controversial, where there were still families that were debating whether this was something that was proper for young women because these schools, for the most part in this period, were being run by foreign missionaries from Europe and the United States. And the schools were giving them a Western education and the idea was that these girls were supposed to graduate and then get married and arrange marriages and become mothers and wives to the you know up-and-coming young men of the Meiji period. But this education that they were getting was making them a bit too independent-minded. So and there was a big backlash against it. Also, there were debates on how girls should be dressing, how they should be behaving. And when girls first started attending secondary school in the 1870s, there were no models for how they should dress. And so they dressed in young boys' clothing. And some of them even cut their hair short. And this was all seen as very shocking and far too masculine. By the 
1890s, that all becomes more regularized. And uh, the girls develop this uh, distinctive outfit that is considered more feminine and higher education becomes more accepted. But in the 1880s, this was all still up for debate. And uh, Miyake Kaho makes her defense for why girls should be able to attend school. And it's not what today we might consider a truly feminist defense. It's not really for their own sake. She makes the argument that this will make girls better wives and better mothers, right? The dictum of the Meiji period, yosai kembo, good wives, wives, mothers. She says that this education will allow them to do this. And so it is good for the nation to allow girls to become educated. But we still see in the Meiji period, and then continuing through the 20th century, the view of the, the schoolgirl, of the teenage girl, as somehow threatening to the nation, not just to the man who is attracted to her, but to the nation as a whole, that there's something disruptive and alluring, but threatening and sexy, but frightening about the teenage girl. And we see this also in the first novel, or what's in retrospect called the first novel of the naturalist movement, Futon, or The Quilt by Tayama Katai, that came out in 1907, which is about an older man, a male writer, who has a crush on a girl who is his student. And you can see very clearly in that novel the way that the male writer is actually literally creating her. He is basing his fantasy of her on fiction that he has read and then mapping that identity onto her. And she like, never speaks directly in the novel and really has no idea that he's doing this to her. But in the end, he, he distances himself from her because the threat that she poses to his family and to his self-identity is too great. But I think we continue to see this throughout the 20th century where there are two separate images of the shoujo, of the teenage girl, and one coming out of the male gaze, like we see in Ukigomo and the quilt, where the shoujo is the creation of the older male who desires her, who finds her attractive, but also threatening, and threatening not just to him personally, but to the social order generally, versus the view that the girls have of themselves that's formed within these all-girls schools that become more and more widespread in the, the first half of the 20th century. That's a great point about the differing representations of female, whether it's a, a female author versus a male author. And you're talking about also that discrepancy between the shoujo character as threatening. An another example that came to mind of exactly that discrepancy was Mori Olgai's Maihime, or the dancing girl. In this case, Mori Olgai goes over to Germany and, and we get the story of this kind of alluring foreign female, but then eventually he decides he needs to come back to Japan. But then we could contrast that to Higuchi Ichio, who's writing about child's play, Take Kurabe. There's a female character in there as well, but that story is much more about growth and you get a very different image of these female characters. Yeah, I mean, Higuchi Ichio is kind of an exception because she was not really involved in this Western education that was going on at the time. She knew Miyake Kaho and was inspired to start writing because Miyake Kaho made a lot of money by publishing The Warbler in the Grove. But she didn't have the same kind of westernized education that Miyake Kaho had. So she wasn't part of these national discourses that were going on at the time about how girls should be educated. And the children that she describes in Child's Play also are kind of cut off from some of the big intellectual shifts that are happening in the Meiji period at that time because she's describing the lower classes and people who are situated in the pleasure quarters. So these are not kids who are getting a really thorough education. But and I think the other thing that we see in Child's Play 
was that all of this discussion and change was really only happening in the upper classes. And the lower classes were not really thinking about their children's education. And you can see that the children in that story are completely neglected by the adults. And I think it's Maida Ai who points this out, that it's not until a few decades later that this concern for the education of children filters down through Japanese society. You mentioned Tayama Katai. I talked about this in an earlier episode with Elisa Friedman as well. But one of my favorite stories of his is Shoujo Byul, or it translated to English as the girl watcher. Yes. <laughs> How would you put this into this narrative of the nationalist discourse? Oh, I think Tayama Katai is the, the prime example of this. And it's really too bad that Shoujo Byul is translated as girl watcher because the actual title is girl sickness. And I think this girl sickness continues throughout the 20th century and even up in, in some ways up to the present day. This morbid fascination with the girl and the sense that the man is sort of helplessly attracted to her and, you know, completely under her power. But of course, if we think about this objectively, he is the one who really has the power in this relationship. And he is just projecting his fantasies and anxieties onto her. Thinking of the way that male writers write the female characters is, is often is, is this kind of alluring, seductive, but ultimately somewhat troubling. It reminds me also of male writers like Tanizaki Junichiro writing Chiji no Ai, or it translated in English as Naomi. But then this often comes up also in films by Mizoguchi, for example, the Osaka Elegy mm -hmm. film. You get that same kind of story. Again, male writers who are using female characters to talk about social decline in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was a graduate student and being exposed to all of this, I was very frustrated that these novels like Ukigumo and Chiji no Ai and Naomi were being presented as images of what girls and women were actually doing at that time period. Because that's not the case at all. These novels are fantasies. These are the projections of the male writer's anxieties and desires. And in one of the, the themes that I see in all of these things is not just that these young women like Naomi are being presented as a femme fatale, which, you know, is a common image that shows up all over the world. But particularly in Japan, they're shown as disruptive to the nation as a whole. They're not just going to ruin the lives of the man who is attracted to her, but they're going to disrupt the entire social order. And this was really what initially drew me to this topic and what made me go back and re-examine all of these classic works, which already have a lot written about them, to be honest. I wanted to recontextualize all of this in terms of the image of the shoujo and the way that we see this consistent and prejudiced representation of her, particularly the, the modern girl with Naomi. I think often this novel gets taught or discussed as if it is a historical document. But really, if we look at what was going on in the 1920s, the modern girl was a moral panic. She was a construction of media and hysteria about what young women were doing. And young women themselves who may have dressed in similar ways or cut their hair short, they didn't think of themselves that way. I'll be guilty of sometimes using that novel that way. But in their classroom discussions, another way that we often discuss it is that, well, you know, maybe this is Tanizaki who's thinking more metaphorically about 
Japan, who's in some ways seeing itself as a modern character, just like Joji or George in the novel, but then finds this alluring westernized figure. And you know, it's notable that Naomi has this westernized name and, and he says he's attracted to her because of her apparent westernness. I mean, is, is it too facile of a reading to say that this is a commentary also on Japan becoming overly westernized in the 1920s? Well, I know a lot of people have read it that way. I mean, they're, they're welcome to their interpretations. But I think that, first of all, with Tanizaki, we have to be really careful about not conflating him as an author with his narrator. In a lot of Japanese fiction in this period, particularly the I novel, there's a very close relationship between the narrator and the author. And the author is basically writing his autobiography or you know, writing down his own thoughts and experiences. But that's not the case with Tanizaki. Tanizaki always is playing around with narrative voice and particularly in Naomi, introducing unreliable narrators and asking us to question the truth and the point of view of what the narrator is telling us, particularly these first person narrators like in Naomi. So I think that Tanizaki as an author is much more aware of what's going on than often he gets credit for. Also, I mean, another feature of the construction of Naomi as a character is that Joji is very clearly mapping her on to the identity of the vamp, which comes from American uh, Hollywood films. And I've written an article about this that traces all of the names of the movie stars that he mentions throughout the novel and the particular films. And you can see very clearly that he has constructed this identity of the foreign vamp as an attractive but frightening type and then lays it on top of this 15-year-old girl who he meets. And she very cleverly picks up on these tropes and manipulates them to her own purposes. But I think at the end of the novel, I don't think it is, and even though he says in the, the last lines, like, you can read this as a warning if you want to, I don't think it's so much a warning as a one man's erotic fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that he has perfectly constructed the masochistic fantasy that he wants to live in. And if we contrast this to another novel that Tanizaki wrote a couple years before Naomi called Nikukai or A Ball of Flesh, which is also about older man who falls in love with a somewhat foreign woman. In the case of Nikukai, she is half Japanese and an actress in a movie that he is trying to make. And in that version, he loses control of the narrative. She gets away from him. And the, the film that he makes ends up being circulated as pornography. <laughs> so, you know, he tries to create an artistic film, but he ends up just replicating his own erotic fantasies. And that masochism, I mean, certainly see it in other Tanizaki, like some prefer nettles as well. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I'm working on an article right now on his novel Manji, which was translated as Quicksand. And that novel, he picks up on and parodies the culture of girls' schools from the 1920s. And I think also this is something that critics of that novel have missed. He puts in very obvious references to girls' culture, and I don't think it's been talked about in those terms, so that's what I'm writing about now. That's an excellent reminder, too, that we you know, shouldn't be too quick to read these as 
metaphors for Japan's position vis-a-vis the United States or the West in general. But could you do the same for Mori Ogai as well? Because that's another one with Maihime and other cultural products from the Meiji period are often read in that kind of way. Yeah, with Morioga, I think it may be a bit more fair because he was really thinking in these terms. And I didn't include Maihime in my discussion of shoujo in Meiji era writing because of the foreign setting, because she is not a Japanese character. She's not a schoolgirl. But and, I mean, it does still fit in this larger rubric of the, the older man putting his fantasies onto the teenage girl. But I, I was going to say a little bit more about these girls' schools and the girls' culture. Like I, I mentioned the Warbler in the Grove and Miyake Kaho. The culture that emerged in girls' schools by the early 1900s was really powerful for the girls who were experiencing it, but it was kind of hidden from the mainstream. And the novels and the cultural production that has come out of these girls' schools has largely not been included in the scholarship on Japan, particularly in the English language. And the only exception to that, I think, is the Takarazuka, the, the all-girls theater review. But the novels and illustrations that come out of that girl's culture, I really have been neglected. And so the references to that culture often get missed. And even by scholars writing in Japanese who should know better. <laughs> I think it's uh, Saito Minako has an article about this where she criticizes the scholarship on Murakami Haruki and Yoshimoto Banana. And she says the scholars who are looking at Murakami Haruki understand all the references that he is making, all the pop culture references and all of the intellectual literary references. And so they understand what he is trying to do and how he's speaking to his audience. But the male scholars who are looking at Yoshimoto Banana don't get the references to shoujo manga and to girls' culture that she's making. And so as she says, they make all kinds of ridiculous over-readings and under-readings because they don't understand the context that she's coming from. I should add also, I mean, this girls' culture was intentionally closed off, not only because girls were expected to remain chaste and not have any interactions with boys, but also because it was protective for them to make this culture not legible to outsiders. So the girls' culture that starts to emerge in girls' magazines and the Takarazuka and the fans of the Takarazuka, they were intentionally only speaking to each other. They developed their own kind of slang their own you know, private world of references and their own aesthetics that appealed to them and repelled outsiders. So when adults would look at the illustrations and stories in these magazines, they would say, oh, this is so vulgar and childish. There's nothing here. There's nothing worth looking at. And it was a way of keeping the adult gaze out of their culture. And we see this also in shoujo manga. I mean, this is one reason why shoujo manga has been neglected as a genre. Because when male critics of manga started writing about manga in a serious way in the 1970s and 80s, most of them were not fans of shoujo manga. There's a couple exceptions, but most of them were not. And when they looked at the aesthetic style of shoujo manga, they found it kind of repellent and off-putting. And so they would just dismiss all of it and say like, oh, this is silly childish stuff. We, you know, this isn't like the, the serious manga that, you know, we adult men can appreciate. So... Yeah, I think there is some intentional kind of deflection. So far, we've been talking about novels mainly set in the Taisho period, but you mentioned there is still this fascination with the young girl character. In what ways does the shoujo character change over time? Well, within girls' culture, it changes a lot. 
as the the status of teenage girls and the amount of agency and freedom that they're granted. So in the pre-war period, girls' culture was really closed because the girls were not allowed to have friends with anyone but their classmates, and they were expected to not have boyfriends and to have arranged marriages once they graduated from school. But in the post-war decades, by the 1950s, co-educational high schools become the norm. Of course, there are still single-sex schools, but more and more girls are attending co-educational high schools. They're allowed to date by the 1960s and 70s. A lot of them have a lot more freedom to have relationships with boys. And so this the fiction that we see aimed at them is no longer about this closed private world. Romance appears as a topic for the first time. This is when we see shoujo manga really come into its own as a genre in the 1970s when it starts to address issues of psychological development and maturation that are happening in the teenage years, a gesture towards more realistic depictions of romance and uh, trying to figure out who you are and your place in the world. And I think this is what has been so powerful for shoujo manga as a genre for girls. But while all of these changes are going on for girls, I think there's still this tendency in literature and film and other cultural production that is created by men to view the shoujo through this lens of attraction, desire, and also fear and anxiety. And you mentioned that shoujo manga really becomes a genre unto itself in the 1970s. You've written about one of the most famous shoujo in the post-war period, and of course, that's Misora Hibari. So can you tell us a bit about her? Yeah, so she starts out her career as a monomane singer, which was a type of celebrity in the early post-war period who imitated other adult singers. So she was imitating Kasagi Shizuko, who was known for a very sexualized act. So you have this little girl who's 11 years old when she makes her film debut, who is taking on the persona of this very sexualized adult. And, and that's what she was known for. But very quickly, when she starts performing in films, her image gets revamped to the, the pure shoujo. And she makes a bunch of films through the 1950s called the Sanin Musume, the, the three girls, with two other young female stars. And yeah, so we still see this image of purity, innocence that's being promoted in these three girl films from the, that period. The first one is called Janken Musume, right? Janken Girls. Yeah, so that's a good example of how the girl image is continuing to be replicated in the post-war period. In that particular example, the threat of the, the girls is kind of contained. I think partly because those films were aimed at girls themselves to a certain degree. They were also co-sponsored by Takarazuka. So they're, they're sort of straddling the girls' culture and the requirement of the larger culture as a whole that the girls be presented in innocent and chaste ways. I knew about Misori Hibari as this child actor. I, I didn't realize her films were sponsored by the Takarazuka Female Review, which really does make sense because she has a kind of Shirley Temple-esque character, right? Where she's cross-dressing and male characters wearing tuxedos singing. But then, of course, she goes on and becomes this basically a pop diva singing Anka songs in the mid-60s that are much more about the kind of mournful pains of, of loss and longing for lost lovers and, and the countryside. And so it's amazing. Career. Yeah, I mean, that's what I thought was so interesting about her, because 
Yeah, she has that persona later in life. But if you go back and look at what she was actually doing at the time, right? she sings about nostalgia and the, the old days. And But when you look at what she her career actually was in those old days, it's completely different. And I think that mirrors the nostalgia of the post-war period of the war generation then going back and reimagining what things really were like and viewing the past in an imagined kind of way. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening. <laughs>